The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're looking at two hot topics in US museums. A bit later, we'll explore the biannual show at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, and particularly the protests around the exhibition. They relate to the museum's vice chairman, Warren Kanders. We'll speak to an activist and to the museum's director, Adam Weinberg. But first, it's auction week in New York. Records have been tumbling, including for Claude Monet on Tuesday night, with a haystack painting selling for $97 million in the auction room or $110.7 million with fees. Then, on Wednesday, Jeff Koons regained his crown for being the world's most expensive living artist, briefly wrested from his head by David Hockney last year. Koons's rabbit, a stainless steel bunny created in 1986, sold for $80 million or $91.1 million with fees. But rather than focus on those, we're going to look at a very specific issue relating to a lot that came to Sotheby's on Thursday. Mark Rothko's Untitled 1960 was put up for auction by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, or SFMOMA as it's known. Neil Benezra, the museum's director, said this earlier this year. With a spirit of experimentation, diversity of thought and openness to new ways of telling stories, we're rethinking our exhibitions, collections and education programmes to enhance accessibility and expand our commitment to a global perspective. Untitled 1960 is being sold in order to broadly diversify SF MoMA's collection, enhance its contemporary holdings and address art historical gaps in order to continue to push boundaries and embrace fresh ideas. Though selling works from public collections, or deaccessioning as it's known in the museum world, is common among US institutions, it remains controversial. The case of the Rothko illuminates many of the debates, not least because Rothko was fiercely committed to his work being experienced by a broad public. Rothko exchanged this particular work for an earlier painting that SF MoMA held in its collection. That latter painting is now in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Rothko is likely to have expected that the painting would remain in SF MoMA's collection for good. But this is not the first time that a work by a major artist is being sold in order to diversify collections. The most famous example is that of the Baltimore Museum of Art in Maryland. The BMA sold works by blue-chip male artists, including a vast Robert Rauschenberg and two paintings by Andy Warhol, in order to raise acquisition funds to buy works by more diverse artists, particularly African-American artists. Baltimore's population is 65-68% to African-American. Of those seven works, five made around $18 million with fees at auctions at Sotheby's in New York last May, and two were sold for undisclosed sums in private sales. These have allowed the BMA to acquire a substantial body of work by African-American artists. Christopher Bedford, the Baltimore Museum's director, led that process, and he joins me on the line to discuss the issue now. Christopher, I'd like to establish the background to the deaccessioning. When you joined the institution in 2016, was it already on the agenda, as it were? Uh, no, not at that point. It was not on the agenda. Um, so the one, one of my first agenda items as an incoming director, of course, was to establish the basis for rapid change at the institution um, as advocated for by the Board of Trustees. And while at that point um, we didn't have a very a clearly articulated, highly aggressive agenda which puts um, you know, equity and diversity front and center in every decision-making process. I was very keenly aware that in those programmatic areas where I had sort of some level of mastery and experience, I could, even in advance of having that formalized mandate, realize some very quick change. 
So exhibition making um, was was an obvious category. So we were able to wipe the slate relatively clean and establish a new sort of imprimatur for exhibitions at the BMA. And then similarly, I wanted to find a way to make significant rapid acquisitions. And in looking at the acquisition funds available, uh, post-war acquisition funds available, I realized that the institution wasn't sort of maximally competitive in that area and can you give us even a flavor of how much how much money you would have had to spend without the accessioning i'm not sure how accurate i can be but it would be in the range of say four hundred thousand dollars a year which as you you know at a glance that will tell you woefully inadequate um relative to the market especially if your stated objective is to develop rapidly one of the most significant collections of post-war art by African-Americans in any institution in the country. The, the requirement that I use for accessioning is that we're buying presentation-worthy objects, things that we imagine being on near, constant, permanent view and quickly associated with the institution. So um, I take as my benchmark our extraordinary cone collection, for instance, which is anchored by the blue nude, Matisse's blue nude, and Matisse's pink nude. So how do you buy in anticipation of establishing iconic anchor works of art within your institution, which sort of declare a mission and identity? So to to do that kind of work, you I think you need extraordinary funds um, in today's post-war art market. And so uh, one of my first conversations with with the cur- with the contemporary curators, asking them to take a long, hard look um, at our post-war holdings and come up with a proposal for a um, very by-the-book deaccessioning program that would provide us with funds specifically to diversify our post-war holdings. So, when you say by the book, what do you mean by that? So, we were very careful to follow AAMD's standards for deaccessioning. So, um, and it, it's it's actually very very interesting reading. The, the sort of the the line in concrete is that when you sell work from the collection, the proceeds from that sale have to be directed towards um, acquisitions. And then within that, if you want to be even stricter, acquisitions within the period that the deaccessioned objects came from as well. Obviously, we had to meet that standard. Um, and then in choosing those objects to be deaccessioned, we were looking for things that were duplicates and triplicates uh, of works already in the collection, works that didn't significantly contribute to the story of the history of art that we were able to tell. Um, So if we were to lose them, it wouldn't be a detriment to the story that we were able to narrate to our publics. Objects that may have constituted a storage burden, for instance. Objects that, relative to our extraordinary holdings in a certain area might not be as high a quality as those paintings and sculptures we chose to hang on to. So th- those are all, and that, I'm not being comprehensive here, but those are all criteria stated within AMD's guidelines for deaccessioning. So bearing in mind that we had a mission-driven programmatic purpose in making the decision to deaccession within, and that, that that being a radical act at the time, I wanted to be quite by the book in determining those objects that would be sold and we were very successful in that one of the things i'm really interested in is conversations with artists estates and that side of it because one of the things that 
is, I think, really important about the Rothko is that Rothko personally negotiated its entry into the SF MoMA collection. So there would have been an expectation, perhaps, on Rothko's part that it would remain in that collection for good. What kind of conversations did you have with estates and how supportive were they of this mission of yours? So we were very careful in every case to um, look at the credit line, look at the accompanying deed of gift for the object to make sure that in making the decision to deaccession, we were in no way in violation of those standards established through th- in, at the moment the gift was given. So um, a really good, two really good examples are the two paintings by Warhol that we sold. They came into the collection through partial gift, partial purchase. Um, so a local philanthropic family helped with the partial purchase aspect of it. And the Andy Warhol Foundation um, provided for the matching gift to allow those two paintings to enter the collection. So in order to deaccession those, we had to go to the family and go to the foundation. And so that was a really extraordinary experience because it required us to socialize these new ideas for collection diversification with, on one hand, an incredibly influential private foundation and um, an influential philanthropic family that provides support to the BMA and other categories. And um, so both gave their enthusiastic assent for us to move in that direction. And I personally think that the, the reason we were given that formal go-ahead, particularly from the Warhol Foundation, is because it dovetails very precisely with their own mission-driven grant-giving activities and is something that I, I believe they think that Warhol himself would have been in favor of. So it was, it was actually a very sort of um, rich and value-driven discussion that gave us great comfort in moving in that direction, knowing that we were doing the right thing in the view of the donors. And and also, it seems to me really telling that I, I was at a conference with you uh, a few days ago, yeah. and, and you were showing some of the acquisitions that you've made. Yes. And I noticed that some of the funding for for the for the acquisitions, at least one acquisition, was from the Andy Warhol Foundation. That, that is exactly correct. So one of the wonderful things that we're able to do in making these acquisitions is to note who helped us bring those things into the collection through credit line. So I think. You know, one of the most appealing and also daunting aspects of leading an institution is that there is the expectation that the actions you're taking will benefit the museum in the present, but also in perpetuity. And so some of those tracks or trails that you leave or speak to the partnerships you formed to make the impact on the institution you saw fit in, in your moment. So, so for me, an object, you know, when Gechi Mutu's Water Woman an already iconic object being brought into the collection as a consequence of the generosity and advocacy of the Warhol Foundation is enormously meaningful. Um, can we talk about the structure of the museum that, that, that creates the atmosphere for this kind of radical um, approach to deaccessioning to take place? Because it seems to me absolutely crucial that we're not just talking about you, the director, of course, we're talking about curators, but we must also be talking about trustees and governance. Can you tell me about the those kind of structures at the museum and have they recently shifted too? No, the structures didn't need to shift at all. In fact, 
harking back to my comment about hewing hard and fast to the most conservative AAMD standards, we also have within our bylaws at the museum step-by-step instructions for moving through a methodical and responsible deaccessioning process. And that involves multiple steps. Um, the first one being those objects that you elect to deaccession have to go before every curator at the museum. And then beyond that to the collections committee um, appointed by the museum to oversee collection development in um, the contemporary area. Then you have to put the sit, put it before the executive committee of the board of trustees, then the full board of trustees itself. So in addition to those things, we we also instituted three or four informal invitation-based um, informational socialization sessions for trustees and interested members of the accessions committees who wanted to understand which objects we were proposing and why and what we would be able to do with the funds and why. So that step in socialization, I think, is the, is the and familiarization is the key to making sure that you have the momentum of the entire institution and all its facets behind you when, you, when you're attempting to do something along these lines. So important that particularly the trustees are able to articulate and advocate for the mission as it relates to the broader purpose of the museum and then link the initiative of deaccessioning to that bigger institutional imperative towards relevance. And if, so for me, those, that extra step in doing the educational informational sessions was really, really vital in being successful. And as a consequence of that, when eventually we went to vote as a board of trustees, um, it was a unanimous decision to move in that direction. And I believe that would not have happened had we not been careful about the socialization process. So that is, there is nothing more important in my view. Before we talk about the specific works that you've been able to buy, can we talk about the audience? Because ultimately, that's what this is about, isn't it? It's about the fact that you saw a discrepancy between the works in the museum and the, and the, and the potential audience for the museum in the city in which it's located. Can you explain a bit about that? So I, saw, I actually saw two deficits, one rooted in the present and one rooted in the past. The fact that we have redundancy in paintings by white men in our collection is itself a consequence of an institutionalized bias only recently acknowledged. So when I speak about looking back, I think it is a process of developing not an inclusive canon, but developing a true canon, doing the research necessary to narrate the way as an institution that art history actually unfolded with an eye towards um, social equity, with an eye towards making sure that all of the participants involved in the formal and social evolution of art history play a role in the way that we narrate it. There is the aspect and the necessity to look back and make sure that the history you are narrating as an institution properly and justly represents art history as it actually unfolded and does not represent historical biases as they've structured collecting historically. So um, on a sort of nuts and bolts level, this means that... um, it would no our post-war history would no longer be predominantly a history written by white males with their attendant slate of advocates, but rather a vastly deeper, broader ranging, more diverse history that represents an actual unfolding of events. So that's that's the backward looking part. And then my feeling in the present is is that if you're able to connect that um 
rewriting of art history with a culminating moment in the present where we see um, Black American artists producing some of the greatest and most relevant work we're seeing in the world today with a um, 60, you know, five, 68 percent black majority American city that technically that's on the East Coast, but technically sits below the Mason-Dixon line and is a southern state has extraordinary significance in in my view. And I think sort of closing that gap between um, art history and social relevance in the present um, and being able to tell social stories of relevance to our community through our collecting initiatives and our exhibition making practices is the highest calling for for the BMA and deaccessioning and all other aspects of you know structural change that we're engaged in has as its endpoint this sort of dream of assuming a new relevance and changing our audience in such a way that it aligns with the community of Baltimore. So let's talk about the works that you've been able to acquire. Can you give us a flavour of some of the things that you have brought into the collection since the deaccessioning? Oh, certainly. I'll just, I'll just give you um, a couple of good examples. One um, is an absolutely extraordinary, monumentally scaled painting by the late, great Jack Whitten called 9-11, which is his homage to um, the 3,000 that perished in uh, September 11th of 2001. And um, it's a masterpiece as a painting, but I think also opens up a very recent and difficult episode in American history, while also narrating a very intimate autobiographical narrative related to its maker. Um, so I want, I, it's a sort of a storytelling object. And just a shorthand, I will say Jack moved to New York City in 1960 and he left the south um where he was born in 1939 Bessemer Alabama and he always said to to me and to others he left the south because he was either going to be killed or he was going to kill someone um and he left landed in New York City uh via New Orleans and became a painter and hobnobbed with the lights of de Kooning and set up his studio in Queens and he maintained that same studio uh, from 1960 all the way until his death. So from the from the roof of that studio, he saw the construction of the Twin Towers. And from the roof of that same studio, he saw them fall. And the object uh, is his, his personal homage to that history and his relationship to it. Um, and I think it has extraordinary power as a formalist object. And also, I think it traffics in both Western ideas of memorialization and African conceptions of memorialization too. And that was that's very much at the heart of who Jack was as an artist and who and what the BMA aims to become as a sort of tr- transnational, diasporic, um, highly ambitious civic institution. So that I just gave you one example of an acquisition only because that's a very rich one, but I think it points to the idea that we are attempting to buy iconic works intended for near permanent presentation 
Now, one of the things that we know about African-American art in recent months is that there's suddenly been a surge of collecting at auction, lots of records have tumbled. And I wondered what kind of dilemma that causes you, in a way, partly caused by your own enthusiasm for the work in this in this field. Does, does that cause you problems? Well, I think it's a it's a double edged sword and I can't call it a problem because I think that the market is correcting itself, maybe not with a sort of I don't think it would be I think it would be difficult to say that a market like the art market has a um a sort of moral compass or a social justice agenda. I think that would be going <laughs> way too far. But I but I will say that the good work done by many curators and directors over the course of the last a uh, few decades has raised an awareness of paintings and sculptures principally being made and or have been made by um, black artists that has transformed the market for that work. So in certain instances, um, there's a, there is unfortunately a posthumous benefit for the artist in that their markets are, are rising and those, those people are being justly written back into the history of art. Um, and then of course, in the present, there are living artists who are benefiting substantially for their rise in, in from their rise in market profile. I would say that when I started buying work by the likes of um, Al Loving, Jack Witten, Howardina Pindell, uh, Mel Edwards, Mark Bradford, there was extraordinary economic opportunity in those areas because the market had not yet turned towards the achievements of those artists. Now that the market has the same level of opportunity doesn't exist. But I have to say that on, I would far prefer to see the market moving in this direction than to benefit from an opportunity that itself is a consequence of bias. So um, yes, there's less opportunity, but I'm perversely glad for it. <laughs> um, the uh, Just glancing at your exhibition program, I, I know that you, you essentially... Um, wiped the slate clean and developed a whole new exhibition program when you when you took over at, at the museum and yeah. and it is really striking to look at your exhibitions coming up this summer and and, and in the fall that you know it, there are african-american artists in, in there you have group shows you have solo shows and and you you know you're really putting your money where your mouth is this this is this is a, a program which is dominated in fact by african-american artists yeah, so so that's absolutely the case. But I would also say that that relates very intimately to the DNA of this institution, um, which has always had a relationship to, on one hand, and at core, excellence and the best work being made in the present. So, for instance, the Cone Sisters, um, probably the most renowned collectors associated with the BMA, develop a, a deep and abiding relationship with Matisse, not only because they felt an affinity with him personally, but because they felt that he was the most important artist living and working during those years in the 20th century. And I think it's really important to understand that this museum was actually resistant initially to accepting that gift of art. Now, that seems preposterous in the present because the Cone Collection, and particularly those works by Matisse, are the, the jewel in our crown. But that was an incredibly radical decision on the part of the Cone system collect that work and for the BMA to eventually accept it as sort of the, the jewel in the crown of our collection, or at least that's what it's become. So I think it's incumbent on us as leaders of institutions or of this institution to carry forth that legacy. And it means anointing from our own 
position of disposition and expertise, um, those artists making the most important work, the most relevant work and the best work um, in the art world today. And for, in my opinion, and I would say that there are many who share this position, the, most, the best, the most relevant, formally ambitious, socially relevant work being made today is being made by black Americans. So to me, we are simply replicating the methodology that the Cone sisters employed, you know, many decades ago. I think there's a next step um, in all of this. And that next step involves, it involves taking these principles most easily applied to the post-war period and trying to imagine how that same mission-driven agenda can be properly and inventively applied to historical areas of collecting. So what would it look like to do this work in our European collection? What would it do look like to do this work when applied to our American holdings pre-1945, et cetera? So that, that's, sort of, that's where we're going next. And I think that's probably a more challenging and adventurous story than the one we're engaged in at present. And lastly, I know that you're about to um, hang a the exhibition display called Every Day Selections from the Collection, which, yeah. which, as your press material says, is the first reinstallation which is centred on the black artistic imagination. Mm-hmm. I imagine that you're going to feel a, a tremendous sense of pride when you open that show because, it, because it, in a way, yes, this, this, this activity has been going on for, for some time now, but in a way this, this is the sort of moment where the collection really begins to feel different. Would that be fair? I think that's absolutely fair. And and you're absolutely correct in saying that there is a sense of pride and culmination that comes with it because changing exhibitions are one thing. Collection development and collection reinstallation are entirely another. I think that that speaks to a fundamental shift in the DNA of the institution. And as you say, the money has been put where our mouth is. So we have not fundamentally reconceptualized the history of post-war art in our contemporary wing since it was constructed in 1984. And in this instance, what we've simply done is inverted the previous paradigm. So rather than have um, white creativity as a sort of default center with all otherness um, encircling that white core to various different, almost invisible degrees, um, what what we've done is put black creativity at the core of the, the, the contemporary reinstallation with a relegation of those white voices to to the periphery to invert the dialogue. And um, we felt that in doing that, it represented um, the direction of the institution, gave us the opportunity to show those recent acquisitions um, that we've been making as a consequence of uh, our use of deaccessioning funds. It allowed, afforded us or, or extended the imperative that we would look into our into storage for those objects that haven't been on view um, for a long time, if at all, and to, you know, present a very different account of the post-war period. And, you know, our, our, our post-war holdings are particularly strong and getting stronger. And I think it will be, I hope it will be revelatory. Chris, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Every day, Selections from the Collection opens at Baltimore Museum of Art in July. To read more about that and the museum's extensive programme featuring African-American artists, visit the museum's website at artbma.org. And what about the SF MoMA Rothko? Well, it was sold on Thursday night at Sotheby's for $43.75 million, which is $50.1 million with fees. We'll be back talking about the Whitney Biennial after this.
Not many artists start their careers making frames for other people's work. That's exactly the path followed by the American artist Charles Prendergast. He was already a well-known picture framer when, in 1911, at the age of 50, a visit to Italy awakened his artistic vision. His work Fantasy, from 1918, to be offered at Bonham's American Art Sale in New York on the 22nd of May, is a superb example of his conversion to the pictorial arts, and bears many of the influences of that pivotal Italian trip. According to Bonham's Director of American Art, Jennifer Jacobson, the work is suffused with references to the iconography and artistic techniques that Prendergast would have seen in Italy. Executed in his unique mosaic-like style, fantasy is a perfect example of his mastery of the carved pictorial panel, and it comes in its original frame, Prendergast's own, of course. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the 2019 Whitney Biennial has found itself in political hot water. Earlier this year, the artist Michael Rakowitz refused to participate in the show as an act of protest against the Whitney's financial ties to Safariland, a company owned by the museum's vice chairman, Warren Canders. Safariland manufactures tear gas canisters and other military products that have been used against asylum seekers along the US-Mexico border. The activist group Decolonise This Place, or DTP, has been staging weekly protests against Canders in the lead-up to the biennial's opening, and a recently published open letter calling for his removal by Verso Press includes around 200 signatures from artists, curators and critics, including the signatures of more than half of the 75 artists in the biennial. The collective Forensic Architecture, meanwhile, who were shortlisted for the Turner Prize in the UK, have made a work specifically about the issue for the exhibition. Margaret Carrigan, our Deputy Art Market Editor in New York, has been reporting on this story and visited the protests and the press preview of the show earlier this week. She joins us on the line from New York now. Margaret, you've been down to the Whitney to witness the protests. Tell us what the feeling is like on the street, as it were. I think the feeling is really resolute at this point. Um, They have been out there, and by they I mean decolonize this place and other um, around 30 other groups that have banded together to bring these issues to light more. Um, they've, they've been down there for the last nine weeks protesting and they are willing to show up there as, as, you know, often as regularly as possible to kind of see their demands of candor's removal from the board realized. So when did this all start, Margaret? Um, the controversy over Kendrick's really got its start uh, back in, in December when, you know, the footage of his tear gas canisters being used on asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border um, per Trump's new crackdown there started circulating. And their labels were connected back to Safariland, which, you know, is is his company. And um, those were then subsequently linked to riots around the world in Ferguson, Missouri and Gaza. And that revelation prompted 100 Whitney employees to um, pen an open letter calling for a reassessment of Kender's place on, as the vice chair of the museum board, since they felt like his company and the source of his wealth that was backing major exhibitions at the museum, like the big Warhol show that was up just recently, unfairly compromised their politics, as well as reflected poorly on the institution, which is known for being a politically switched on and progressive place. Um, and, you know, this, the, it was a, incendiary letter in a lot of ways, but director Adam Weinberg and Counters himself both responded to it with open letters, which were, I mean, mildly conciliatory, but also had a a subtext that was basically like, we don't see much cause for action here. 
So when you fast forward a couple of months, you know, so Michael Rakowitz declined to participate, um, decolonized this place, really kind of took up the baton on this um, and started staging their protests for nine weeks outside of the, ex- the museum and lead up to the exhibition, you know, to really bring more light to the staff members' claims. Like, you know, to, to the, the, the problem is that um, there are people within the museum. It's not just, you know, outside groups that, that want to see candors removed. And and um, in a moment, we're going to hear from one of the activists. Does it feel then that this is a sort of a movement with a certain element of momentum? So you say it's grown from staff and now we have these activist groups. Do you sense, is, is that a growing process as it were? I really do think that it, it's growing and will continue to grow as the as the biennial is open as well. Um, the protests themselves have been, you know, around 50 to 100 people any given week. But I think, you know, as it's becoming increasingly um, imperative for more and more people to come down, I think more people are getting engaged, the longer there is without some sort of definitive statement from the Whitney or action taken by the museum. Okay, well, now let's listen to the interview with Mars Saffel, who's an organiser with MTL Plus Collective and Decolonise This Place. So why did you guys feel like this? it was important to make this a collective issue? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a collective issue because these tear gas canisters are being used around the world. So on January 1st, when President Trump decides to uh, deploy tear gas against migrants crossing uh, the U.S. border... Uh, pictures of that tear gas went viral, right? And everyone's like, huh, Safari Land. So then you had protesters in Ferguson being like, that's the same tear gas used against me. You have people in Palestine sending in images being like, that's the same tear gas. You know, we took it out to Puerto Rico, Kashmir, Baltimore, Oakland, uh, Turkey, Egypt, it, it, uh, everywhere. So once that happened, it, it, that in and of itself makes it a collective issue, right? Um, and also it's important thinking through labor and, and which staff members signed this letter, right? Many of the staff members who signed the open letter that started everything, shout out to them, are front of house staff and people of color who aren't getting paid enough to do their jobs. And so when they see that this tear gas is being used against people that look like them, immediately, obviously, there's a response there that, that someone needs to take action. So initially we came in solidarity with the staff in solidarity with the migrants at the border uh, to point out Warren Kanders. So uh, many artists participating in the show have signed on to DTP's open letter calling for Kanders removal. And um, even Forensic Architecture, which is a collective that's going to be in the biennial this year, has said that its work within the show will address the issues surrounding Kanders. And um, on top of that, this when the artist list was first announced, Michael Rakowitz also decided that he wasn't going to participate for this ex- very reason. Now, this has also raised some concerns that these actions place undue pressure on artists for whom being included in the exhibition is a huge boon to their career. So they're kind of being, in so many words, being asked to choose between their work and livelihood and their politics. What What do you guys say to that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, first, I just want to clarify that Verso Books put out the letter, but Decolonize This Place, we're extremely happy that the letter exists and that almost 50 uh, artists have signed on to the letter, over 120. Well, now the number has grown, I think, to even past 200. Uh, art critics and theorists and historians have signed on to the letter, so, like, shout out to them. Um, I And I also want to clarify uh, something for me as a queer black woman is that there's 
there is no separation between politics and livelihood, right? Because they make it such that our livelihoods have to be politicized. Just by being, just by being in this body, by being in my skin, that is the case. I too am an artist. I have an MFA from NYU, so I understand the pressure. And never was this uh, a all or nothing here or there issue where it's like, um, you know, Decolonize This Place never called for artists to withdraw from the show. Um, in fact, we're excited that uh, many of the artists in this year's biennial are artists of color, indigenous, black, brown, queer artists. We're excited that the show is uh, one of the main curators for the show is a woman of color. We're super excited for all of that. Um, I think that this issue, um, however, can still be taken up. And it, it's... Um, I think that there's nuance to it, that the artists who eventually signed on to the Verso Books letter, I think that they see that, right? Like, if you're going to be working in a place, you have to hold that place accountable, um, if not simply for your own well-being and your own safety. And uh, we're in a moment right now in the art world where the landscape is changing in terms of accountability and who's on museum boards and land governance and all of these things. And so I think people are feeling that energy, um, especially as we see the rise of different movements, um, you know, from Black Lives Matter to Me Too to what's happening in Palestine and in Gaza right now. So I think all these moments are colliding and it's, it's forcing people out of their comfort zones for sure, but I'd rather be pushed out of my comfort zone to, than to be tear gassed by the NYPD knowing that the NYPD bought $7.3 million worth of Safari Land weapons in 2016, right? So if, if that means that my workplace is a little bit more uncomfortable than it already is being a working class queer person of color, then so be it. In the letter that was put out by Verso Books, um, you say that at stake there are deeper structural questions related to the distribution of power and the shape of institutional governance, which is what you're just kind of gesturing towards. Um, and we've seen a lot of museums questioning that lately, including like you know different museums foregoing Sackler donations and other focusing on focusing on repatriation of works. So, were there to be a constructive resolution to this conflict at the Whitney, which I hope there is, how could that provide a beneficial beneficial precedent for other museums going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in New York City, over 20 grassroots groups and collectives that are, you know, specifically POC-centered, uh, that are rooted in different communities, have called on our museums to adopt a decolonization commission. The decolonization commission is one demand that is either wholly adopted or not adopted at all. And there are seven points in there, uh, starting, of course, from the land that we're on, recognizing that we're on occupied Lenape land, and uh, thinking through the ways in which we may Make that territorial acknowledgement and indigenous uh, solidarity uh, concrete. We, uh, there are other demands such as uh, undertaking anti-identification initiatives, understanding that Warren Canders is only one of many issues on our boards. Uh, our boards are filled with real estate developers such as David Berliner at the Brooklyn Museum, who is one of the people responsible for the selling of of Brooklyn near the Barclay Center, which if, you know, if you're a Brooklynite, you know that that is what set off this wave of gentrification that we're now seeing in Crown Heights. You know, today we're coming on a train from East New York, on a liberation train, and East New York is starting to get gentrified, right? So thinking through those people on our museum boards, um, another demand is an uh, upgrade of pay and working conditions for staff. So when you go to museums, who are the people that you see? They're always going to be a person of color in there always going to be underpaid but who are the directors of these museums they don't look like the people who are the front of house staff the cafe staff the people who are selling you your tickets the security guards that's just not the case um and there's other points too to be addressed um and the last one i'd highlight is uh 
a deep diversification of the museum, but not in terms of, uh, you know, simply checking boxes right, thinking through the idea that representation is the floor, not the ceiling. So, of course, definitely get some melanin up in these museums, but at the same time, there's a certain decolonial politics that people have to adopt to do that, right? Fanon talks to us about this idea of the petty bourgeois and the idea that people can look like you and still dine with a colonizer. So I don't want some, you know, centrist or barely leftist or someone who's going to be against Palestine, but she looks like me and she's queer, right, being on these boards. Um, and also it's, it's to open it up. So it's not just the few people making decisions for museums, specifically given the fact that New Yorkers pay for these museums to exist. Um, thinking through the American Museum of Natural History and the Metropolitan Museum of Art are the two highest funded museums in the city with our tax money. And in fact, I believe those museums take um, about 80% of all of the cultural funding each year, leaving 20% for over 1,000 institutions of color to fight over. Um, yet, what are they doing to us? You know, so th- so this decolonization commission, because you know, in the past, they'll take one little piece of it and they'll be like, deep diversification. Here's a black girl. Um, but this is something where all seven points need to be wholly adopted for it to for it to happen. Uh, and just out of curiosity, do you guys have any further action in the works if nothing comes of this before the biennial's opening? Um, We're definitely thinking about it. Um, And I think something, too, that we're pushing for, you know, this the nine weeks of art in action is the work of over 30 groups in and beyond the city. Um, And each of us have been, you know, bottom lining each week, making this happen, making, you know, over, you know, this is week eight. And I would safely say that over a thousand people have come to these actions in the past eight weeks. And what's important is to note that this isn't just a decolonize this place issue or an American Indian community house issue or a Mikasa Noah Sukasa issue. This is everyone's issue. So we encourage folks to think through a diversity of tactics and a diversity of ways that they can address uh, this issue. And in fact, that's something that we've been for since the beginning. Um, that's why decolonize this place ourselves. We never called um, for artists to, to boycott the biennial, right? We understand that everyone's coming from different positionalities, different privileges, different identities. Everyone has a different way of acting and organizing. If you're a researcher or a writer, right, I, that's like, I'm surrounded by those people because I'm in a PhD program right now, so it's just like a bunch of academics. Cool, go write about it, you know? You're a photographer, awesome. We need photos to be taken. You're a videographer, cool. You're a dancer, you're a poet. Whatever it is that you do, there are many different ways to, to, to attack this museum, to attack its brand, to attack Warren Candace. You know what I mean? Where did, the, where did the board of trustees live? I was just in Brooklyn with, um, with a Movement to Protect the People, where they're fighting uh, for this high-rise not to be built because it's going, to, well, one, because of gentrification, but two, because its shadow will actually harm for like 40% of the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and kill the flowers in 10 years. They actually had a scientific study conducted to prove that. So what do they do? They show up on Saturdays to the director's house and in, you know, whatever white Fort Greene, Brooklyn Heights type neighborhood. And we demand that she meet with them. So what are people doing? Y'all got Google, you know, where does Warren Candace live? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm back here with Margaret and we're now going to talk a little bit about the show uh, before we hear from Adam Weinberg. Um, Margaret, you went to the press preview earlier in the week. Tell us what you encountered when you got to the Whitney. Overall, I think it's um, it's a strong show. And, and really, you have to give it to the curators, Jane Panetta and Rue Hockley, because um, they've put together the most diverse roster of 
emerging mid-career American artists that, that the Whitney has Whitney Biennial has seen. And a majority of those artists are of color. There's an even 50-50 split between male and female participants. Um, there's, you know, a, a wide smattering of like more established names that uh, like Simone Lee, Wang Gachin Lutu, Nicole Eisenman. There's also um, a lot of under the radar artists that I think have very interesting works within the show. Um, I really like the work of Daniel Lind Ramos, who is a um, Puerto Rican artist, and he has some uh, really good uh, installation works that speak to kind of the the Hurricane Maria disaster and how that was how that played out um, on a kind of a political commentary level um, with you know Trump refusing to address address the crisis there in the wake of the hurricane. Another really great artist there, um, Carissa Rodriguez has a really large scale video installation that speaks to uh, rewriting the art historical canon in some ways, but then also speaking to like class discrepancy in America. So there's some really like poignant work that's happening. Perhaps one of the, the easiest ones to really focus on is um, forensic architecture which is a UK-based firm that actually created a program using AI to um, capture the, the Safariland tear gas canisters and images uh, that are circulating on the web right now to, and, and, and include their resulting video of that also includes information about the civilian deaths in Gaza linked to these kinds of things and, um, and uh, other other things that speak directly to the controversy around condors. So um, I think that there is a certain amount of political activism and institutional critique going on in the show itself, which is really important. But then a lot of people are also saying that in some ways that that's just not enough at this point, like regardless of the strength of these works, some people feel like it's just not quite enough despite the strength of the works themselves. Um, with, without the institutions taking more responsibility. Okay, well, let's hear what he has to say. So I wondered in your, your opening remarks this morning, you said that it, there is a long history of controversy and protest that surrounds the Whitney Biennial. There's, of course, been plenty of that leading up to this year's. How, in, in some ways, is this um, de rigueur for the Whitney Biennial and, and why is it important that maybe that the Biennial stokes these kinds of responses? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of my trustees said recently, you always say that the Whitney should be part of the conversation. The conversation being the dialogue about what matters in the world, what matters particularly in the art world, in particular what matters to artists. And she said, you're part of the conversation, but being part of the conversation doesn't mean you always get to choose which conversation you get to be in, mm. which I thought was a really wise statement, and I've repeated it because, you know, it's true. The museum, and it's interesting. I look at the old Breuer building. It was surrounded by walls. It was a fortress. This is a museum that's basically membranes in a way. That The transparency of it is about the idea that the museum is totally connected to the world. What happens in the world matters in the museum. What happens in the museum matters in the world, which means that you have to engage the world on its own terms. You can't treat art as if it's, you know, in some kind of totally protected space. Um, 
that's very hard sometimes, but it is the reality. Artists make art in the world, mm-hmm. but they also make art because they're trying to, you know, extract things from the world in their own visions. Mm-hmm. So it is of the world on one hand, but on the other hand, it's 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 something that they are then changing, shifting in a way that is yeah. about them personally and their perspective of that. A lot of, like you were saying, art doesn't really happen in a vacuum, essentially. Yes, exactly. And, the, and it the never Whitney, has. Exactly. Whitney. And the Whitney, thank you. Um, the Whitney has been really instrumental in demonstrating that in a lot of ways over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. And some of the work in the show this year actually speaks directly to the protests that have been going on surrounding board member Sanders. So I wonder... I wonder what the conversations were about that, about the necessity of, of letting artists respond to it as they saw fit. Yeah, and you know, when um, Forensic Architecture came to us in the early part of the year and said that they were going to be doing something on our board member, we just said, okay. You know, I mean, we when we invite an artist to do something, unless it's physically going to harm somebody, they're going to do something that somebody could actually get hurt physically, you know, our space has to be a space for, a, you know, a protected space for unsafe ideas, as a colleague of mine always says. And um, it was never questioned um, by the curatorial staff or by me or by the board as to whether we would show it. And to me... It's a sign that, you know, we really live by what we say, that we're willing to have a piece in the museum that is critical of the museum, that is critical of not just this museum in a way, because what they're questioning is not just an individual and not just this museum, but they're criticizing where the money comes from that supports cultural and educational and, frankly, all not-for-profit institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, the monies of these sources for all of these things come from all of these different industries and backgrounds, and that's the question they're raising, and that's their not only their right; it's good that they raise questions, you know. Right, and you're certainly not the institution, the only institution no. that's going through this kind of reckoning as well, with, exactly. you know, with sponsorship and, and, and support. So, um, so I'm proud. I mean, I really am proud that we're doing it. Is it easy? No. And am I? You know, I, I mean, I feel badly for you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, for the difficulties that it might have on staff or otherwise, mm-hmm. but I, I truly feel that this is what we're here for. Yeah. And then you also mentioned in your opening remarks the 1993 biennial, that was a real watershed moment with, you know... And I was here. The, yeah, and, and with regard to the culture wars at that time and how it really precipitated um, a whole new era in terms of the biennial and also museums in general and how they look at um, yeah. um you know, cultural relationships. Yeah, we've and never we've never shied away from it. You know, yeah. I mean. Do you think that this could perhaps be a similar moment with this biennial? Yeah, I think it's similar, but I think as as we know, no, no two moments in history are the same. I mean, I grew up in the '60s, and I grew up with the idealism of the '60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was there for the you know for civil rights marches and marches on Washington during the Vietnam War, and um, and. It's different because it's a different time we're in. The issues are related, but not exactly the same. The culture is different. Social media didn't exist. Um, And I think, I would say that for the most part, even during the 60s, there was a kind of an idealism 
and even a utopianism, which you could see in the culture at all, with, with, you know, whether you were looking at the communes that were created and all of that. I don't think there's the same sense of idealism right now. I think that people are really frustrated. I think there are many people who are trying to fix the culture and trying to be aspirational. And I think a lot of the artists in the show are putting things forward, putting forward propositions. And the, the fact of their making things and creating in and of itself is a positive thing. Creation in and of itself is a positive thing. Otherwise, you just don't do it anymore. So they, you have to believe in something positive. Otherwise, you wouldn't create anymore. So I fundamentally believe there are people who are doing that. But I think there are a lot a larger percentage of people who really feel the system and the systems are broken in our culture and um, as a friend of mine's um, uh, millennial daughter said um, you don't get it mom it's not about fixing the system about throwing sand in the gears interesting and I always and actually that is an image I have the other one is of a a stick in the spokes of a bicycle Mm -hmm. that you that you're so angry that you want to do something and I understand that it's part of what's going on in the world and people have a lot of things to be angry about I get it Um, on the other hand um, we as an institution all we can do is give people the form and the possibility in a place to discuss it we're not the root of it all we didn't start it all and we're not going to end it all right Last question for you. Um, all that being said, and you're saying there is a certain amount of optimism in a lot of the work yeah. that is on view, and the curators, Jane and Rue, have done such a really wonderful job of drawing so many different viewpoints in, mm. such a wide breadth of artists. Um, what are you hoping that visitors take away from this year's biennial? I do hope that they bring away some sense of hopefulness in a way, because I think if, if the kind of... the um, uh, preliminary kind of press and politics surrounding this, I would guess that a lot of people would have said that it's not so political directly, that it really isn't a directly, that actually it's, it's it, there's definitely a dark undercurrent under a lot of the work. But I think it is a profoundly beautiful, moving, poetic. It is one of the, I think, one of the most spare, open, um, light-filled installations, even on a rainy day, and I, I actually think, um, yes, it will cause people to reflect. It will cause wonder. It will cause questions. But I also think it will say, look at the n- number and the diversity of creative voices. Of seventy-five percent of the people in this show are under the age of forty. To me, that's an incredibly hopeful thing that you have. For you know that you know seventy five percent of the artists in the show are young artists who are doing really striking, interesting work. You know that's I think that's a real positive. I feel good about that. Yeah. I mean, and they, I think they feel really good about it. I mean, being around the artists at the party last night, you could see that it was so palpable and it's so exciting. And you know, look, they're not at all oblivious to the politics and everything. But you know, you know, they also so many of them have to believe that this participating in this can be helpful in some way otherwise why bother why get up in the morning why make art you know well we'll ask people to keep following theartnewspaper.com for margaret's reporting on this issue thanks so much for joining us today margaret thank you then
the Whitney Biennial continues until the 22nd of September at the Whitney Museum of American Art. You can follow all our news and reviews on the Biennial and much more, of course, at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscription options so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe also to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. That's all for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. And if you're enjoying it, please do give us a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julie Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing. Thanks to Christopher, to Maggie, Mars and Adam. And thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be back in New York to look at the Guggenheim's exhibition Artistic Licence, in which six artists become curators and choose work from the collection. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now. <laughs>